Let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning as we go back to Revelation chapter 2. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you hold us accountable to it. Father, I pray that as we discuss difficult things this morning and think about your design and your intent for our lives, that our takeaway this morning would be absolute submission and obedience to you. That our lives, Lord, would be captivated by a desire to do one thing, and that is to glorify you in the role that you have placed us. I ask, Lord, that as we look at your word, that the Spirit of God would do what only the Spirit of God can do. That you would draw sinners to yourself. And Father, that you would draw us to repentance if that's what's needed in our lives. I ask that you would help us today. Cleanse us of our sins, Father. The things that would distract us and take our minds away from your word. And we'll give you the praise and the glory for it in your name. Amen. All right. We are um, two points in to the five points that we had identified for uh, the church in Thyatira. And if there was an alternate title for last week's message, it would have been a tale of two ditches. We talked about um, the contrast between the church in Ephesus who left their first works. And then we contrasted the church in Thyatira whose later works exceeded their first works. And how those two two churches compared and how both of them ended up in a ditch. And today I want to look at points three through five. And if we were to have an alternate title for this, it would be the intolerance of love. The intolerance of love. Point one and two, just briefly to touch on in an introduction from the Son of God, this harkens back to chapter one where Jesus gives all of this symbolism to communicate who he is as the king, the Messiah. And he says to the angel of the church in Thyatira, the the words of the son of God, remember this harkens back to Psalm 2. We talked about that last week and we will finish up this morning in Psalm 2. He is the son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are burnished bronze. And Jesus reminds the church in Thyatira later on why this is important. And then we had the commendation. He says, I know your works, your love, your faith, and service, and and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. And we talked about the fact that if you had been sitting in the pew in the church in Thyatira and the elder was reading this letter from John, you'd be feeling pretty good about yourself right about it. But point number three, we have the admonishment, which begins with this. I have this against you, beginning with but. Here are the strikes against the church. And he says in verses 21, you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess 
and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Last week, we talked about the context of this church in Thyatira. This was a a blue-collar town by any stretch of the imagination. This was a town that, that produced goods and services for the wealthy. Remember, Lydia was a producer of, thi- of, of uh, purple. Um, purple was worn by the wealthy. These people didn't wear purple. They made purple so the wealthy could wear it. And they had trade guilds. And these trade guilds were were much more than what we would think of in terms of um, labor unions. These trade guilds were connected to idols. And so part of the, the worship of the culture was linking up the way that they made their living, connecting it with their finances, and then connecting it to their worship. And so if you're a Christian that's working in this time, there's a crisis of conscience around every corner for you. And in this idolatry had seeped and crept its way into the church. And this is what the Lord of the church has against Thyatira. First of all, it says they were tolerant of that woman, Jezebel. So just a a brief historical survey on Jezebel. Now, you're thinking, why Jezebel? Jezebel, if you do the math, would have been sometime almost a thousand years prior to this church's existence. So why is he referencing Jezebel? Well, just like I asked last week, he references Psalm 2. What would the church in those days have known in their normal study? And by the way, we're not far away from First and Second Kings, which is where we'll, we'll study her in great detail. They would have been studying the Old Testament. They would have been well-versed in who Jezebel was, just as the church in Pergamos was well-versed in Balaam and Barak. And, And we go back to verses 14 and 15, where it talks about Balaam and, and not Barak, Balak, sorry, to the former president. Satan's methodology that we saw with Balaam and Balak is to get Israel to compromise. Remember, um, Balak paid Balaam to come and curse Israel. And Balak said, I'm all, I'm all in. And God shuts him down, stops the donkey in the way. The donkey has a conversation with Balaam. Balaam, to his best intent, was not able to deliver that curse. But we find as we read between the texts later on that Balaam gives Balak a backdoor into Israel. And that is to get the men of Israel to marry the daughters of the pagans around them. And they fell into Baal worship. Balak's authority or his advice, if you will, to Balak is you can't outright destroy Israel as they are blessed, but send in your women, seduce them, and get them to join you. It was the doctrine of pluralism, if you will, to get them to coexist. 
there is no supremacy of belief here. It's a, a commingling of, if you will. So Jezebel, just a brief history on her. She is the wife of Ahab, who was for a brief time a king of Israel. She was a Baal worshiper. And she killed the prophets of the Lord. She threatened Elijah and orders the murder of Naboth. Naboth was a local landowner who the king wanted his property. And he was down in the dumps about the fact that he couldn't get the property. And she said, I got it. Knowing all the rules and the laws of Israel, she concocts a scheme to get two witnesses to bring an accusation against Naboth. Naboth is stoned for blaspheming the Lord. And guess what happens to his property? Ahab gets it. So Ahab, after marrying Jezebel, promotes the worship of Baal in Israel. We see this in 1 Kings chapter 16. And two chapters later, the narrative credits Jezebel with killing the prophets of God, while Obadiah hides a hundred of them in a cave to protect them. After hearing of the massacre, Elijah confronts Ahab and challenges the 450 prophets of Baal to a showdown. You guys are well familiar with that story. Those prophets that Elijah challenges eat at the table of Jezebel. Jezebel is a wicked woman. And we find that after, um, after King Jehu is put into to office, he is chosen by God to wipe out the house of Ahab. And Ahab's son, Joram, extends a peace offer to Jehu, which is rejected. So Jezebel takes it upon herself to put on the charm and try and win over the new king. And as she's standing on the wall to call to him, do you remember what happens? Her own servants push her over the edge. And they throw Jezebel out the window. Her body is trampled by horses, eaten by dogs, and spread as manure over the field of Jezreel. So it paints a pretty vivid picture to the church in Thyatira when God says, you are tolerating Jezebel in your church. Tolerance in our culture has been elevated to a fruit of the spirit. You ever notice that? The ultimate in moral achievement is a state of tolerance. If we were to define tolerance, and uh, dictionary.com says this about it, interest in and concern for ideas, opinions, practices, etc., foreign to one's own, a liberal, undogmatic viewpoint. Are Christians dogmatic in their views? To be tolerant is to be undogmatic. Tolerance presupposes taking the other person's perspective, not just being aware of it. Did you catch that? Tolerance is taking the other person's perspective, not just being aware of it. Well, tolerance is not, by the way, a fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5.18 says, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. 
Now, the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. On the slippery slope of culture, we have moved from mutual respect or patience for human beings that are created in the image of God to all religions are equal. So what are we as Christians to do with this? And where did this church fall short? Well, the answer, as always, comes back to Scripture. We must have a biblically informed worldview, and our minds must be renewed by God's Word. We are in a constant, constant battle to be shaped in how we think by this world. And what we see today, I, I want to read you just a blurb of a book that was published recently. It's called The Transformation of American Religion, written by a sociologist who, by the name of Alan Wolf. And he says this, quote, talks of hell, damnation, and even sin have been replaced by a non-judgmental language of understanding and empathy. Most American churches and synagogues today are characterized by attitudes and practices which are joyful, emotional, personal, and empathetic on the one hand, impatient with liturgy, and theologically broad to the point of theological incoherence. In other words, when you don't stand for anything, there's nothing to stand for, you become theologically incoherent. Um, by the way, he's all for that perspective, but I thought it was an apt definition of where culture has taken much of the church in our context. So what happened to this church? Well, in short, they misunderstood biblical love. And I think we, if we're not careful, are in danger of doing the same thing. Mark talked about it as we wrapped up our Bible study this morning, that we're to love our enemies. And the real question is, what does that mean? What does it really mean to love our enemies? If we let culture dictate that for us, it means be quiet, be accepting. Their viewpoint is just as correct as your viewpoint. You've heard it so many times. We're all on the way to the tip of the mountain. We're all worshiping the same God. We just have different names. And as we wind our way to the top, we'll all end up at the same point. But Jesus himself was absolutely exclusive in saying that he is the way, the truth, and the life. There is no other way to get to the Father but through him. So how do we handle this? When we talk about biblical love, and, and remember, Christ confirmed the fact that this was a church that loved. 
He says, I commend you for your love, but I, I admonish you for your tolerance. So how do you walk that line? How do we understand that line? Because this is important. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We would all say Paul is a loving apostle, wouldn't we? He writes this to the church in Corinth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all, meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since you then would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you to not associate with anyone who bears the name of what? Brother. If he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. What is the implication of this? Think about this for a second. If you have a, a person who claims the name of Christ that is in open rebellion and sin against God, what does what does me hanging out with that person do for that person? I'm affirming them, a word we love to use these days. So what are we to do? Paul says this, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? It is not the... Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Our love for God's church demands action. And here was the problem with the church in Thyatira. They allowed Jezebel in type to do what she was doing. We're going to talk about what she was doing in just a second. But here is a church, because of its love, misunderstood in their naivete what tolerance versus love means. And it's an incredibly important distinction as we are being squeezed in our culture to tolerate. By the way, Christianity is not being tolerated. You, you know why Christianity can't be tolerated? Because it's dogmatic. It draws a hard line in the sand. There is no other way to heaven but through Jesus. That's exclusive. If you hold that line and you do not compromise on that line, you're going to create walls. There will be divisions. But we're supposed to be winsome. Right? Also not listed as a fruit of the Spirit. We... It's important that we remember what the fruit of the Spirit is because we're having the fruit of the Spirit redefined for us by the culture. We have to go back to the Scripture. So they were being, or they were taking no action. Meanwhile, Jesus says in Revelation chapter 2, verse 6, when he talks to Ephesus, yet you have this, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. What? You hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Is there any ambiguity with how God views sin? And why is there for us? Paul says this, Romans 12, 9, let love be genuine. All right, let's define brotherly love here. Christian love. It is to be genuine. In other words, real love. Romans 12, 9, let love be genuine, abhor, 
The word abhor means to strongly dislike something with the result of distancing oneself from that thing disliked. Abhor that which is evil. Wait a second, Paul. I can't judge. So what am I to do? If I say something is evil, I'm making a judgment. And by the way, scripture says to make righteous judgment, aren't we? Again, we've been duped into believing a lie. Let love be genuine. Abhor that which is evil. Hold fast to what is good. You are making a value judgment according to God's word on what is evil and what is good. And it's important to know the difference because we have a we have a choice here. Either we push away from evil and we cling to that which is good, or we we commingle the two. And here's where the church in Thyatira is. So what should our loving attitude towards sin be? Well, righteous, godly, biblical love hates sin. And let me just say, biblical or godly or righteous love hates sin both in myself and in my neighbor. We're to make righteous judgment as to what is evil so we can abhor that which is evil and cling to that which is good. And we are to be lovingly honest. What does it mean to love our enemy? What does that mean? To be buddies? To pat him on the back and affirm him or her in their sin? See, we're, we're sold this bill of goods that that is what loving someone that disagrees with us or is in sin is all about. Here again, the words of Paul, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12. And he gave apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. Is Paul telling us we're to discern doctrine? Mm. By human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, and here's, here's, here's the essence of it. Speaking the truth, what? In love. Speaking the truth in love. I submit to you that we are not loving if we are not speaking the truth. You can't say you love your enemy if you are not speaking the truth. We have to understand this. And and here's where the the confusion with Thyatira laid. They thought they were being loving by making concessions and allowances. Speak the truth in love. We're to grow up in every way into him who is the head in the Christ. So what was going on with this church? Well, just as we talked about this morning, they allowed open rebellion in the church. So what's going on with that? Well, let's let's look at the text again. I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food, sacrifice idols. What? How many... You've seen those puzzles. How many things wrong can you find in that sentence? 
How many wrong things are there? And this is where our culture would make this very controversial. But we don't need to apologize for scripture, brothers and sisters. First Timothy 2, 11 and 12 says, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. The word submissiveness there means to, to appoint, to order, to arrange. God has an orderly arrangement for many, many things in his creation. The church is no less one of them. And we find that, that the church is out of order here. Not only are they out of order, they are in rebellion. Why? Well, Paul continues in verse 12 of 1 Timothy 11. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Now, this is where the barrage of, of um, what are all the terms that would be hurled this way? Um, chauvinist. Chauvinist, yes. Thank you. There's other words. Um, sexist. Sexist, yes. What else? See, these are all on the tip of your brain because you knew. If I say this, this is what happens. This is about being in rebellion to God's created order, his arrangement of authority. And he has these arrangements of authority in every area of creation. I, I noted six, but there's really seven. The more I thought about this, the last verse hits on number seven. I want to give them to you briefly. But there are very clear authoritative designs that God has placed in his creation to help us understand what is at stake with the church here. And let me start this by saying that Christians are people of obedience. Okay? Let me preface everything I'm about to say with that. Mark, you, you said the verse this morning. If you love me, what? Keep my commandments. Christians obey. We are marked by lives of obedience. This should not be earth shattering to us what I'm about to say here. And when I think about how subjection, subjection to authority works, I think of traffic rules. One of the, the words that's used regarding subjection or respect or reverence is the idea of yielding. And we, when we think of yielding, we think of merging into oncoming traffic. Have you ever been in that right lane and that guy didn't yield? What happens when people don't follow traffic laws? You want to run them over? Yes, that's exactly what it now. That would not be loving my enemy, brother. Shattered that you would even suggest that. No, you lay on your horn, roll the window down, and wave hello. No. When when people don't follow the laws of traffic, what happens? You get in wrecks. And when a wreck happens, everything stops. Then you really get annoyed because you're sitting in traffic about to run out of gas and not be able to do anything about it. God has orders, structure, and yield, if you will, in our lives. Let me give you a few of these. God has an order for the heavenly realm. Jesse touched on this this morning. 
Jude 1, 6, and the angels who did not stay within their position of authority. By the way, this is just a continuation of Jesse's Bible study. It's Jesse's world. We're all just living in it. <laughs> the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling. He has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. What was Satan's sin? That pride, which ended up in rebellion. Thinking about Absalom and his rebellion against his dad. God has an order for the heavenly realm. He has an order for man in creation. What is that order? Genesis 1, 26 through 31. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock livestock, and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Is there an order of authority in creation? Yes. Did, did Adam chase down the animals to name them? Hey, zebra, come here so I can tag you with your... No. What did God do? He brought all the animals to Adam and whatever Adam named them, they were called. There is a hierarchical authority in creation. So God created man in his, in, in his own image, and in the image of God, he created him male and female, he created them, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Let me ask you a question in terms of our subjection to this. The environmental movement, as it's comprised today, is about one thing when you get to the heart of it and you really dig into it. It's about population control. God clearly commands Adam and Eve, subdue the earth, fill the earth. It was God's design to fill the earth. Do you think he had planned for resources for mankind in which to live? We have that completely on its head now. God has an order for man over creation. He has an order for the family. This is where it hits home for us. What happened with Adam and Eve? In Ephesians 5, 22 through 6, 4, it says, Wives, submit or yield to your own husbands as to the Lord. The husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And guys, if this is where our chest puffs out and we think, yeah, preach it, there's a problem. Because we need to understand that in every realm of authority that God has ordained, there is responsibility. And there is accountability. Men, if we want our wives to submit to us, we must make our yoke easy, just like Christ did for us. If we love our wives as we should, guess what? There's not a submission problem in our homes. But as you will see, as we continue to peel this onion back, the submission problem, the chaos that is in our culture right now is all a result of this. We are not submitted in every area of our life that God has called us to be submitted to him. 
We're out of order. We're out of his design. And when you and I get out of, out of God's design, we're miserable. We talk about people being at peace. Our culture's at, at each other's throats right now. Why? Because they're out of order. They're out of their role that God has placed them in. The question is, what about us? So God's order for the family. The husband is the head of the house, the head of the home. The wife is to be subjected to him. And then the children are to be to be subjected to mom and dad. Children, verse 6, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Or this is verse 1 of chapter 4. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with promise that it may go well with you, that you may live long in the land. Fathers, again, accountability, responsibility. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. You think, well, I'm dad. I'm in charge. Yeah. And if you want your children to bristle against your authority, lower the boom on them. If we love them, we will teach them and raise them in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. We will raise them to love God. And we will be gentle in our love. And as I heard a, a, a preacher say, we will make discipline beautiful. But this is a hard thing for us. And why do we bristle at this? We say, well, I'm just not comfortable in my role. Okay. Whose problem is that? Does the pottery have the right to say to the potter, why have you made me this way? See, just the intimation that I am not comfortable in the role that God has placed me in, if I'm in line with his ordained design, screams, I have a problem. I'm out of subjection to Christ. Every area of subjection that I'm going to talk about all goes up and flows to the head which is Christ. Every area of authority that God has ordained flows up to him. Every single one of them, whether it's the family and I, as a father, I'm accountable to God. You've seen the ethical debate on social media. Should I attend a same sex wedding as a Christian? Well, the answer is easy. If we understand God's design, the answer is easy. Because really what is taking place is a lack of subjection to God's design. It is rebellion. That's what this church was dealing with. God has an order for next, the church. Hebrews 13 Verse 17, obey your leaders and submit to them. Whoa. For they are keeping watch over your souls. And this, this, listen to what it says. As those who have to give an account, there is accountability to be an elder in the church. There is absolute accountability any man who steps into the role and lords his authority over the sheep is a fool. 
and will be held accountable. Let them do this with joy, not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Peter says in 1 Peter 1, 5 through 7, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that the proper time he may exalt you, casting all our anxieties on him because he cares for you. Everyone in the church is submitted. Do you see that picture? Every believer is submitted. The question is, who are we submitted to? And here's the controversial question. Should women be teachers or preachers in the church? Last year, Saddleback Church, pastored by Rick Warren, argued that the gift of pastoring is different from the office of pastoring. Now, that's pretty nuanced, isn't it? The office of the elder is different from the gift of the elder. So, in other words, the logic follows like this. If a woman is gifted and talented to do eldering, she should be allowed to. Only we'll not call her the lead pastor, we'll call her a pastor. You see the manipulation that we're doing with scripture? And they were called on the floor of the SBC. And unfortunately, the president of the SBC made this statement. He said, quote, while I have long respected Saddleback's ministry impact and heart for getting the gospel to the nations, I disagree with their decision to take this step. And would even say I find it disappointing. That's scalding. That is scalding. Because it's not outside of the bounds of the faith and uh, the Baptist faith message. It is, but what is it really in opposition to? God's word. But, but even this milk toast response screams, I don't want to come off as too manly. Heaven forbid I should speak up and talk about the role of women in the church without offending someone. So I, I need to carefully walk this back. Again, the question on this is clear. If we understand God's design, if we understand his created order. What is that design? First Timothy 3, 1 through 5. This saying is trustworthy. If anyone, oh, there it is. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Well, what does that mean? Anyone can do it. Well, not exactly. 
Verse two, the overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife. The word husband there in the Greek means andros. It means man, male, husband. It refers to human men or human males as opposed to women. Now, I know we have confused those roles in our culture right now. We don't call mothers mothers anymore. We call them lactating persons. Have mercy. You haven't, you haven't heard that one? Oh, yes, yes, yes. Um, and I, I saw an interview in front of Congress the other day, and the question was asked, the absurdity of it is, can men have babies? And the person being interviewed, I think it was the head of Health and Human Services, I can't remember applying for a job, and they wouldn't answer the question. You think, well, how hard is that? How is that a hard question to answer? Can men have babies? Well, the reason they wouldn't say no, men can't have babies, is because of transitioning from one gender to the other. You can still have ovaries if you decide to look like a man. And so in theory... We can't say that man is still a woman. So, therefore, do you see the confusion? Do you see the absolute breakdown of structure and order in our culture? This is by design. This is what the, the enemy wants to do with God's created order. Titus 1, 5 through 11. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order. Does God desire the church to be ordered? Absolutely, he does. And appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer is God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant, quick-tempered, a drunkard, violent, greedy of gain, but, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, Empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party, they must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching what is shameful or teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. So what else was going on with insubordination in Thyatira? Well, if you look at verse 20, Christ says she calls herself a prophetess. Well, what's wrong with that? Well, outside of the prophetess perspective, which I'm not going to dig deeply into, there's just one problem. How were prophets made prophets? By God. Is it an affront to God to call yourself a prophet if he has not made you a prophet? You're saying, I am the mouthpiece of God. He might have a problem with that. In Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 4 through 5, it says, Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you, I appointed you a prophet to the nations. 
who makes profits? Or I should say, who made profits? Christ. Verse 20 continues, and she is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed idols. This was the heart of the issue. Not only should she not have been teaching, not only had she wrongfully put herself in the role, but what she was teaching was counter to, we read it when we started, the fruit of the spirit. Deuteronomy 13, this is what God tells Israel regarding a prophet. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass. And if he says, let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you. Know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, you shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him. And here it is, and keep his commandments and obey his voice. And you shall serve him and hold fast to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you leave the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So shall you purge the evil from your midst. Is God indifferent towards false doctrine? God has also given order and government. I just, I touched on this briefly in Pergamum. I I want to, uh, I want to remind you here, Romans 13, one says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Are we to be obedient to government? Yes. There is no authority except from God, and those that, it, that exist have been instituted by God. Now, verse 2, Romans 13, verse 2. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority and do what is good and you will receive his approval for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid for he does not bear the sword in vain for he is a servant of God an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. So just a word on government. We are to be obedient citizens. Now, I I want you to understand this. Paul is clearly declaring what Rome ought to be. And this is very tongue-in-cheek that Paul is doing here. Because Paul is telling the believer to obey the Roman government. What he's also saying is, Roman government, you are not in compliance to God's declared, ordained will. Why? Because they were they, Rome was not punishing Christians for doing bad things, were they? They were punishing Christians for doing good things. So whenever we see government get out of its lane and disobey God's declared governing authority, they're in sin. You say, well, okay, well, what are we going to do about that? Well, it is biblical and it is right for the church to publicly address the government's sin. 
I would urge you to do a little bit of research on the history of Linda B. Johnson and the 501c3 tax exempt status. You know why that came into be? Historically in the United States, churches have always been tax exempt. Did you know that? You never had to file to ask the government to recognize your tax exempt status. 501c3 status came about because LBJ had a problem with the people who he was running against in a campaign who were bringing up his marriage infidelity and preaching about it in church. That's not good for campaigns. So he, in 1969, I believe it was, brought about and dropped this into a law that urges the church to stay out of all things political. Now, I'm not espousing that from the pulpit, we pull for a party. That's not what I'm talking about. What I am talking about is calling sin, sin. The government is not exempt from the preaching of God's word. It is under God's umbrella. The government is under God's authority. So do we have biblical precedence for this? Well, what happened when John the Baptist went to Herod and said to Herod, Herod, it's not right that you should have your brother's wife. That is an abuse of your authority. Now, it didn't end well for John the Baptist, but what was John the Baptist doing? He was faithful. Here is the king who had every authority to take his head off, and he exercised that authority. But what was John the Baptist doing? He was being faithful as the, as in, in, in the, the voice of the church to prophetically speak against sin. And the church has been shut down from that because, oh, separation of church and state. Nonsense. There is nothing in this world outside the authority of God's word, including the government, including politics. Everything is subject to him. Everything. That's the point. God has an order for the workplace. We talked last week about the fact that this church was a blue collar. Or this was a blue collar community. And these people dealt with real conflicts of conscience on a regular basis. We are told in our society, secularism. Well, what does that mean? It's great that you worship on Sunday, but come Monday, leave that out of the workplace. And I'm here to tell you, God is king over our workplace. Now, that doesn't mean our bosses recognize him as king, but that doesn't mean I shouldn't. So how does that look? Well, Paul says in, in, in 1 Peter 2.8, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. Ephesians 6.5. Now, by the way, does that mean I must follow every blind command that my boss gives me that lies, cheats, and steals to, to advance the company's agenda? No. Why? Because everything is subject to God's word. If there is a contradiction between what the government tells me to do, as in Peter, Paul, stop preaching. What did they say? We must obey God rather than men. When we understand authority, that it all rolls up to the head, which is Jesus Christ, everything is subjection in subjection to that. If I, as a husband, tell my wife to go commit murder in her loyalty to me, she should disobey me. If your boss tells you to do something unethical, you should disobey him. Why? Because you serve King Jesus. 
You are in subjection to him. And us being in subjection to him demonstrates to the world around us that we love him. He is our king. This is what kingdom life is all about. And for Christians in Thyatira who were members of these labor guilds, their bosses were putting pressure on them to be subjected to those idols and not to God. Jesus is telling the church in Thyatira, everything is under my authority. And if you are a Christian, you must obey me. And you're to obey in every other realm of authority, as long as those realms of authority are in subjection to me. Does that make sense? If Jesus is our Lord, then all issues of subjection should matter to us. Subjection by each of us in all of these different fears shows spheres shows that we are obedient to Christ. Um, Jesse touched on this, but R.C. Sproul called sin what? Remember? Cosmic, Cosmic treason. Sin is a refusal to submit to God's created order. We worship the creature rather than the creator. Why? Because I don't like how he made me. And the only thing I can do to get back at him is to be something that I'm not. We subvert gender on every front because we're committing treason against our creator. Treason is the crime of murdering someone to whom the murderer owed allegiance, such as a master or a husband. Treason says to your God, your creation is not good. What did God say when he created the world? It is good. His order, his alignment, his setting of everything in place was good. He called it that. Treason says to God, your creation is inadequate. I need to tweak it. That's what sin is. Satan, the great rebel, is trying to subvert every aspect of God's authority, his ordained order in society. In 1972, Saul Alinsky wrote a book called Rules for Radicals. You've probably heard of it. And he says this in the forward of the book. He says, quote, lest we forget at least an over-the-shoulder acknowledgement to the very first radical from all our legends, mythology, and history. And who is to know where mythology leaves off and history begins or which is which? The first radical known to man who rebelled against the establishment and did it so effectively that he at least won his own kingdom. Lucifer. Now, for those of you who don't know who Saul Alinsky is, he's a communist who is plotting to overthrow the government, a rebel. It's a reoccurring theme. You look everywhere around us and, and sin, if we boil it down, is a lack of subjection and, and obedience to God. And the question for us this morning is this, are we examining our life in light of God's ordered design? Are we pushing against it? Are we bristling against it? I'm not quite happy with how he made me and the role that he's put me in. Are you trying to get as close to that line as you possibly can without crossing it? That's why we nuance God's word, by the way. It's not a lead pastor it's an associate pastor well what else the elders had not exercised discipline 
they themselves, the elders, are out of subjection to God, aren't they? It wasn't just this teacher that was out of subjection to God. Who else was out of subjection to God? The elders. They allowed her to teach the deep things of Satan in verse 24. 2 Corinthians 11, 3 says, But I fear lest by any means as a serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. You know what the occult is? The occult is a Latin word from the Latin that means occultus. It means clandestine, hidden, or secret. You know what Jezebel was doing? To the church, she said, I want to take you into a deeper understanding of God. I'm going to take you to a place so that you understand that you can be a Christian and you can go to those parties in the temples and do those things in the dark. And it doesn't compromise your Christianity. Why? Because you're advanced in your understanding. Just like Satan did with Adam and Eve, God said, God withheld information from Eve. He withheld information from Adam. I'm the one that really loves you. The essence of Satan's appeal is that God is keeping things from us. That's the temptation. And when this false teacher takes you away, as Paul says, beguiles the mind away from the simplicity of Christ to deeper things. Beware. There, by the way, is there a new teaching from Scripture? And somebody says, I have a new doctrine or a new understanding. Run. Galatians 1, 6, you can. I promise I'm winding down. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be tolerated. Paul uses a pretty strong term here. He says, accursed. It's the word anathema in the Greek. It's a pretty heavy duty blow. If anyone is preaching to you another gospel, you better take it seriously. As we said before, as I now say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel, when scripture repeats itself, what is what is it doing? It's adding emphasis, so listen up, right? Paul says, I said before, I say it again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Or am I now seeking the approval of man or God? Am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. That's that's the issue right there, isn't it? In my tolerance of sin, what am I really doing? Am I attempting to please God or am I attempting to please man? That's the trap for us, isn't it? We don't want to be ridiculed. We don't want to be scorned. 
And when we speak the truth in love and we get pushed back, which inevitably the unrepentant will do, how dare you judge me? I just don't need that. And it's so much easier just to love, love them and say, go on your merry way and be happy. Peace to you. That's not love, though. We're not loving them. So here's the warning, verses 22 to 25. I promise I will be brief. Point number four, behold, I will throw her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children, i.e. her disciples, dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to you according to your works. Does God take what she's doing in the church seriously? Yes. Do the elders take after hearing this what she was doing in the church seriously? Well, we don't know, but we hope so. God's patience, his tolerance, if you will, has a limit. God will not tolerate inaction, and we need to understand that God's Seeming delay of intervention here is not indifference to sin. He will intervene. The mockers, the scoffers who say, where is the promise of his coming? Everything is just like it used to be. And the scripture says, when the Lord returns, it'll be just like the days of Noah. Everybody will be eating and drinking and giving in marriage and everything will be great. God doesn't care. Everything's awesome. Life is good. They mistake, I know what you're thinking, they mistake God's delay in his return, his forbearance for indifference. And it is a tragic mistake. Romans 9, 22, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much Patience, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. God is not mocked. And he says, I gave her space to repent, and she didn't. The time that we are living in right now is screaming God's mercy on humanity. He is giving space and time for the preaching of the gospel and for mankind and humanity to repent. But that day is coming to a close. And when he returns, he will unleash his wrath and it will be unspeakable. His patience has a limit. He says, but to the rest of you, and not all of the church had followed this corruption. He says, to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay any other burden on you. Only hold fast what you have until I come. His glory is at stake, and he will vindicate his glory. And to those who are doing what is right, he says, keep doing it. Just as we read that passage in Deuteronomy regarding the false prophet, 
He says, you shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice, and you shall serve him and hold fast to him. What do we do in a culture, in a world that is seeped in rebellion and idolatry? We hold fast to him. It is our call as a church to be faithful when the rest of the world around us is not. Point number five, we have a promised blessing. Briefly, as we wrap up, verses 26 through 29, the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. Here's number seven, by the way. We talked about all those realms of authority. There's a seventh that God will claim. And it's prophesied in Psalm 2, verses 7 through 9. And we started with Jesus' identification of the Son of God. It takes us back to Psalm 2. He says this, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Ephesians 1 tells us all things will be summed up in Christ. God will set every disordered rebellion back in order, and everything sums up in Christ. He is the head of all things. He is the head of all authority. Then we see Christ promises to give himself, and this is really interesting. This harkens back to Balaam. He he says, I will give him the morning star. You know who prophesied about the morning star? Balaam. Hmm. How about that little twist? You think the Lord doesn't have a sense of humor? Numbers 24, 15. And he took up his discourse and said, the oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor. The oracle of the man whose eye is opened. I could hear him just sounding all arrogant like that. The oracle of him who hears the words of God and who knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down with his eyes uncovered. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. You think there's just a little bit of reminder here from the Lord to the church in Thyatira that I am sovereign over my enemies. Even the enemy Balaam, who wanted to subvert my children, I made him prophesy of the coming morning star, the coming scepter who would rule the nations with a rod of iron and break in pieces those empty pots. The encouragement for us this morning is that he is absolutely sovereign over his enemies. He's sovereign over everything. And the question for you and I is, are we obedient to him? In Acts 17, verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Does scripture invite or ask us to repent and believe the gospel? No, it's a command. Why? Because to be a follower of Christ is to be in subjection to him. You can't have him as Savior and not Lord. It's impossible. 
It's a lie. Everything sums up in Christ. My question for you is, have you submitted to the command of Christ to obey his gospel? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the reminder that you are coming back and that your seeming quietness is not indifference on your part. All of the chaos and the rebellion that seems to surround us everywhere. Father, that we wrestle with ourselves. We'll be set straight. We'll be made right. We ask, Father, that you would help us to order our lives in subjection to you. Help us to examine our lives, Father, and and show us if we're out of order, if we're out of obedience in in any way, shape, or form. We're not submitting to your design. We ask that you would take every bit of rebellion from us, that our lives would be marked by submission and obedience to you. I pray, Lord, this morning, if there's any who have not submitted to you, that have not bowed their knee in obedience to the gospel, that you would do what only you can do through the power of your spirit. We ask these things in your name. Amen.